All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling. For both my newsletter and Chen's, you need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. For Chen, you do need to sign up on a waiting list, uh, and then uh, at the beginning of each new calendar quarter, we accept, uh, Chen accepts new subscribers to his letter. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to encourage you also to keep your questions and comments coming along to us at questions for Taylor, questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is jtaylormedia. Also, do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Carlisle Goldfields, RN Resources, Copper Bank Resources Corp., and Kalinex Mines. I've titled today's show, The End of Washington as Superpower. This, uh, our guests today are Richard Mayberry, Michael Oliver, and Brent Cook. Now, I've titled the show uh, on the basis of Richard Mayberry's special report, titled The End of Washington as Superpower, based on an excellent 127-page report that uh, Richard has written. Richard, along with James Perloff, have become once-a-month guests on this show because I really believe that both of them are especially in tune with America's historical past and have, I believe, an honest and true vision of where the country is going, or at least where it should be headed, uh, if we wish to retain the liberties uh, given to us uh, given to all of us, uh, I believe, uh, by our Creator. Well, James Perloff focuses more on history, American history, more recent history, I would say, and the unique ways in which Americans have been, in, in many cases, uh, tricked or deceived into supporting wars that have undermined our Constitution and our liberties, I might add. Richard Mayberry, on the other hand, takes a very long-term view of history, and from that vantage point realizes there is nothing new under the sun in terms of the savagery of human beings one against another. Major themes of history do repeat, as, and Richard's perspectives help his readers prepare, I believe, very, very adequately uh, for the trouble ahead and ways to not only survive but to thrive through those difficult uh, future events. Drawing from his book, The End of Washington as Superpower, we will ask Richard to help us see the signs that are pointing to the decline of uh, the United States as a superpower uh, and for some ways on how we might turn 
what would otherwise be negatives into positives. With regard to major markets, we focus on every day and every week. Michael Oliver, who has also become a regular guest on this show, uh, will we'll share some of his visions of stocks and precious metals from his structural, from his structure and momentum point of view. Uh, excellent, very unique, I think, work that Michael does. And then right after Michael, Brent Cook, who is a highly regarded exploration geologist and stock picker in the mining sector, will join me to share some of his top picks with you and also some of the reasons it's so difficult to find gold uh, and to find uh, replace the gold that's being mined out by the major mining companies. Uh, well, Richard Mayberry will be with me at about a half past the hour, but I'm really delighted to say that I have with me right now Michael Oliver. Um, Michael is the author of The New Liber- uh, Libertarianism, that's Anarcho-Capitalism, and his website, uh, which I strongly suggest you go visit, is OliverMSA.com. That's Oliver, M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert. Uh, and he writes an excellent newsletter, Momentum, Momentum Structural Analysis, which I look forward to uh, almost daily he puts something out and this is a letter that is really intended for uh, for sophisticated investors investors uh, high net worth investors uh, but it is a very valuable tool and uh, those of you who uh, who may be able to use it uh, are strongly advised to go again to Michael's website OliverMSA.com welcome Michael thank you for joining me again I'm glad to be here Jay Always good to have you with me. In your weekend missive, uh, you noted over the past year that the NASDAQ has led the rest of the U.S. equity markets, but your work now is suggesting that the NASDAQ may actually uh, be about to underperform the S&P. Could you explain? Sure. Uh, Specifically, I was talking about the NASDAQ 100, which, of course, there's a futures contract for it, and and the QQQ is the ETF that reflects Uh it. It's popularly conceived to be a tech index. And in fact, if you dig inside, it's, it's, it's heavily weighted to tech, but it's not totally. There's a lot of biotech in there. There's some industrial stocks and so forth. So it's a broad index, uh, misconceived by many. But it has held a leadership performance position uh, since over the last year or so, meaning it has done better on the upside than the S&P, and you can measure it all kinds of ways. The reason for that, though, is peculiar because it is definitely not technology broadly defined. It's primarily several biotech symbols and Apple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Apple, of course, is a world in its own. And as I, th- I think it's somewhere of 13 to 17 percent of the NASDAQ 100. So it's uh-huh. a heavily weighted stock. And therefore, it is a very narrow, narrow leadership within the NASDAQ 100 that constitutes this outperformance. Uh, mm-hmm. If it were broad leadership, that would be different, but it's very narrow. It's literally a few biotech stocks in Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, the, my measures of that performance, both as a spread where you divide the NASDAQ into the S&P and you get a weekly reading, uh, but the momentum of that spread is indicating to me that it's topping out. No, it has not finished. Uh, it's, it's not broken down. In fact, this week it's reasserting itself. But the bigger picture of it looks like something that's in the topping process. And I think that will be important because obviously if the leader of the last year or so on the upside peters out relative to the S&P, then that's not, you don't want your leader to fall down. <laughs> okay? uh, and I, I think it, because it is so narrow and technically vulnerable, I think it's a place to watch. All right. Well, of course, uh, most mainstream pundits, the ones that are they're sort of touting the virtues of owning stocks perpetually, are suggesting that there will be a change in leadership, perhaps, uh, so such that the S&P as a whole 
uh, is going to actually climb again this year, as uh, as it will every year, of course, Michael. No, well, that's it's true. You know, we all know it's going up forever. So why even think about it? Uh, right. No, there, I I have a hard time finding that leadership. Um, there are you know weighted sectors within the S and P: technology, consumer discretionary, uh, consumer staples, healthcare is a big one, uh, and of course healthcare is is a dynamic leading sector. A lot of its leadership was due to biotech, and if you break the biotech sector down into the component stocks, there's you know a couple hundred of them. You really only have a handful that are really making money, and some of those are making it off one drug or here or there. So it's extremely narrow. Leadership both in the uh, healthcare sector and in the NASDAQ 100. Uh, it's uh, akin to the dot com bubble uh, in terms of the narrowness uh, and, and the fragility, I think. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm keenly watching those, uh, the biotech behavior, the NASDAQ behavior versus SP as a clue, an ancillary clue or a coincidental clue to a topping process, which I do think we're in. I think the SP mm-hmm. is topping. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, as you. I think you noted a week ago or two weeks ago, perhaps, when we last talked to you, that you know there's that perception that stocks are ever rising, but in fact, they haven't made that much headway over the last year or so. Well, uh, it's been popcorn here and there. The DAX index had a belated upside in Germany because of the ECB recent action, and it went up like 20%, whereas the S&P is, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we were trading unchanged on the year. Uh, mm-hmm. We're now into April, and we're up, uh, you know, a few per- several percent on the year at best. And you know, ask me tomorrow whether we're up several percent on the year. It's, it's that kind of market, uh, and I think it, with reason. I think there's a lot of disbelief. I think there's a lack of buying, and there's likely a lot of distribution. So that's why we're stuck in this this mode mm-hmm. of a very, very incremental advance. Just enough yeah. to say new high here or there. In fact, we haven't made a new high since February. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's interesting. Well, uh, you know, certainly at the, towards the end of a market, there's always always this optimism, and, and uh, the really successful investors over long periods of time are able to exit uh, at or around times when it's difficult. Uh, when when the gut says stay in, make more money, and, and greed uh, sort of picks up and uh, is a dominant emotion. Well, let's talk about gold. Uh, another technical analyst that I have on this show once in a while is Dr. Robert McHugh, who uses Elliott Wave and a host of other tools as well. His work is suggesting that with respect to gold, he thinks that the last eight months of this year are going to be much stronger than the first four, and he's expecting uh, a minimum on the upside of 1400 or so for gold. Does that seem anywhere uh, realistic to you, Michael? Well, not to outbid him, but I think you could be in the mid-1500s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that depends on reaching certain hurdles and breaking through. Uh, and the hurdles, as I measure them by momentum, not by price. Price is a – everybody looks at price. It's a, like a common, much-used tool. Uh, I take price and detrend it and measure it via momentum. And I see some numbers in the uh, this quarter, uh, so we – April, May, June. Uh, at at twelve fifty four, you close a month out up there. In fact, probably even a week. Now that's that's three or four percent above the market. That's no big deal. Uh, and, and notice also that gold does not drop back much, while the S and P's had its recent rally, which is very interesting. But you mm-hmm. get up into the mid twelve hundreds again, uh, and it's starting to engage uh, some breakouts of significance. Get up around the mid twelve seventies any time in the next few months, uh, and you're launched. Uh, in my view, that launch should take you probably up into the 1500s. Now, again, the issue of will it occur this year or not depends on the breakout, and we on, we need to achieve the breakout. But what I what I'm enamored of here is that gold is holding quite well 
despite one dollar strength and two S and P strength uh, in, mm-hmm. in recent weeks, uh, and and so that that's a good sign that it's like a snake in a den, ready to strike. It's it's not going away. It's not running away. So uh, a lot of things are, but gold is not. It's 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 hovering, and mm-hmm. I think it with intent. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of things uh, you talked recently about the commodity sector. Uh, with just about two minutes or so left, Michael, uh, how, how is oil looking to you now? Is it still looking uh, vulnerable on the downside? I don't trust the rally. I thought the rally would occur that would take out the top of the box. The box recently since uh, early this year has been $54, and we surged up to 56 57 now. Mm-hmm. And that breakout is very obvious to anybody with a chart and a crayon. Uh, I think the breakout is probably false. I think you'll probably resume another decline, but I do think we have begun a bottoming process in oil. Now, whether there's a new low, which I suspect is a good chance of, I don't, that's not really a big issue. I think the major issue is that the collapse since last summer, I think, is you know, 80 90% spent, and I think what we're looking for now in oil is, is a final low and a, a completion of a bottoming process. But I, oil is a laggard. It is not a leader among commodities. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in 1980, when commodities peaked, oil was the last one to peak. Mm-hmm. Well, here we are. Uh, many commodities have had their stuffings kicked out in the last few years, gold, silver, and so forth. Oil only recently had that occur to it. So it's not going to be a leading indicator of a commodity turnaround. It'll be the last one, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would look more to gold and silver and, and uh, grains, uh, for mm-hmm. that matter, uh, in, in terms of a commodity upturn. But oil is uh, in an interesting position. I do not trust the rally here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had some really interesting charts, too, on lumber and steel, I think, uh, and, and copper as well, uh, mm-hmm. suggesting that perhaps what those commodities are telling us is that the global economy uh, may have some problems ahead. Well, you, you can excuse and rationalize away the oil break with fracking and so forth and say, well, you know, it's just higher good technology and so forth and so on. Yeah. And, you know, to some extent, there's no doubt true. But uh, it has to be a demand component, too. And when you look at a lumber chart or copper, uh, and, and, and cattle is due for some downside as well, these are lagging commodities that look like they have some payoff on the downside. But what's so coincidental about them is a lot of them, steel, particular copper, oil, and lumber, they're core sort of building products. For sure. Uh, core economic. Uh, they're not uh, monies. They're not gold and silver. They're not grains. Mm-hmm. They're long-term mm-hmm. cycle products. And they're in, in, you know, in, in a sharp decline. In fact, if you look at the lumber chart right now, you would be quite scared about mm-hmm. what, it, what it implies. Mm-hmm. Well, well, certainly you would think that people that are preparing to build houses and uh, would be out there in the futures market getting ready and bidding up the price uh, if you had a strong economy. So it's a very interesting work. Michael, thank you again for being with us. Always a pleasure to have uh, have you on to uh, to pass along your, your insights. Very valuable stuff. Thank you very much for being with thank us. You, Look to do it again sometime soon, I hope, next week, hopefully. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away because coming up next, Brent Cook will be with me, and he's going to talk about the problem the mining industry faces in supplying new ore to replenish uh, the tremendous amount of gold that's being pulled out of the ground by the major mining companies. A lot of difficulty in replacing those ounces. We're going to talk to Brent about uh, why that is and, and maybe get some ideas, uh, a couple, hopefully a couple of uh, picks of companies that might be able uh, to be successful in ex- exploring, developing, and producing gold in the future. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Brent Cook. When it comes- 
comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asenko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Brent Cook. He's been a frequent guest on this show, uh, and that is true. I've had him here because I really do value him very highly, uh, both for his uh, code of ethics and also as a talented geologist uh, with some very, I think, some very practical ideas about how you may be able to improve your odds of success when investing in uh, the mining sector, especially this show, is focused more on the precious metals sector. Uh, Brent is the author of an excellent newsletter called Exploration Insights, and you are encouraged to visit uh, his website uh, to go go there to um, to learn as much as you can about what Brent uh, is doing. And his uh, he also provides some uh, some free information there that is, uh, I think, very valuable, and uh, also uh, a chance to. Uh, sign up for his newsletter, Exploration Insights. And uh, welcome, Brent. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining me again. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be on your show again. Always good to have you. Now, forgive me, but I've I failed to write down. It's Exploration Insights is the name of your website, I believe. ExplorationInsights.com. ExplorationInsights.com. Uh, so, yeah, listeners, you're encouraged to go there and take advantage of uh, what. Uh, Brent provides uh, free of charge, and then you may want to consider signing up for his uh, newsletter if you are an investor in the mining sector. Well, Brent, you know, recently you talked about the extreme difficulties of discovering commercial-grade gold deposits, and in fact, uh, you, you had a very interesting chart that you showed me that showed, you know, in recent years, a decline in major discoveries being made, and a couple of years back, 2001, 2003 or so, 
uh, I think early in the 2000s, there were a couple of large, there were a few large copper gold porphyries, but very few and fewer all the time seemingly uh, standalone gold projects. Uh, of course, I, w- I would expect some of that is just uh, simply a function of the easy deposits being mined long ago and, and continually, obviously, the easy ones go first. Uh, but in any event, you point out that in order to improve the odds, uh, which are very much against successful uh, discovery, I think something like one in a thousand new discoveries uh, turn into commercially commercial successes and something like only one in 10,000 actually find deposits that, uh, that have more than four million ounces of gold in them. But you mentioned to improve the odds, uh, geologists need to really follow a scientific method, the scientific method that we all learned in grade school, how we're supposed to approach uh, science and uh, you know how we're supposed to practice science, how we're supposed to think about things. And uh, you know, I, I, would, I would think that most geologists would go along and do that. I mean, I would think that that would just be a natural, but are you suggesting that maybe not all geologists or maybe all companies that hire geologists are not abiding by or, or following the scientific uh, process? Well, well, to some degree, Jay. I think uh, first off, those statistics which were put together by Newmont that one in a thousand prospects become a economic deposit of some sort, those are just across the board and include you know, every bit of moose pasture and sagebrush some companies okay. out there mm-hmm. raising money on. And it, you, know, you can improve those odds dramatically by investing uh, in companies that know what they're doing with geologists know what they're doing. Sure. It gets us to the scientific method. And, and you know, in theory, you, know, you, you postulate, make a thesis, test that thesis, look at the results, reevaluate your thesis and test it again. And I think, you know, that's sort of what you need to do in, in the mining sector, exploration sector as well. The difficulty we have is that most of what we're looking for uh, is not apparent from the surface. So we're getting little bits of information scattered across an area, call it, you know, one or two square miles, and trying to formulate an idea of what might be below the surface you know, mm-hmm. an economic ore deposit based on that data. And the real problem that a lot of geologists and companies face is that they don't have a good sense of what an economic deposit really should look like. Mm-hmm. It's more of a treasure hunt, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they get a bit of encouragement. They raise more money and a bit more encouragement. But in the end, most of these companies end up with a property or a prospect or a deposit that is really marginally economic or not economic. And the reason behind that is, you know, I think geologists as a whole are very optimistic and they keep thinking that, you know, the next whole drill hole is going to hit it. Uh, two, there's a lot of luck involved in this because there's so much uncertainty. And three is, you know, the, there are not enough deposits out there to uh, support the thousand or two thousand companies that are exploring, and that's a whole industry of brokers and bankers and lawyers and this and that who mm-hmm. live off raising money for these things. Mm-hmm. So that's the third issue that one has to consider. So, getting back, I think to your original question, I think what you need to do as an investor in this sector is understand 
what a deposit looks like, and more importantly, what it doesn't look like. And even more critical is the company and people you're backing need to understand what an economic deposit looks like versus an uneconomic and get out of any project that is not looking economic. And that's mm-hmm. what I spend all my time doing is if you can find that fatal flaw, you save yourself a lot of money. And in fact, you end up making money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, saving money is, is making money ultimately. If you, if you lose it all, you don't have enough to, to put on the next deal. So, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty common experience over the last three or four years for a lot of people, I'm afraid. It seems to me, Brent, that there is uh, uh, maybe multiple agendas then in this industry aside from finding a commercial ore body. I mean, if you can just keep the... Uh, keep keep the stock rising and keep the money. Uh, I used to work with a mining engineer in, in my past. Uh, Ricardo Campoy used to talk about how most of these companies up in Vancouver are mining people rather than mining gold. I'm afraid that's true. <laughs> uh, afraid so that's we want to avoid being uh, among those people who are being mined, uh, and and we want to uh, be uh, investors in companies that are mining for gold, of course, you, I, I think one of the easiest, most logical places to to look would be uh, to companies that have had uh, people that have been successful in the past. So, uh, you know, we, we know who some of those people are. Uh, you mentioned also recently uh, in, your, um, in, in something that you wrote, uh, the factors that are required to improve the odds of success, uh, such as... Uh, the ability to conceptualize, I think is what you were talking about, a legitimate target that offers the possibility of a meaningful economic deposit. What might be one of the first things that you look for, Brent, when you start to see some numbers coming along, uh, a company starts putting out its press releases about some drill results, for example. What, what, what are some of the things that go through your mind first in determining whether it's a legitimate, has a legitimate chance uh, of becoming a commercial deposit? Well, clearly size. I think if you're going to get involved in this sector, uh, speculating on exploration, you don't want to find a small deposit. You want to find a big deposit. And that's where you get your 10 or you know, 20 or 30 baggers mm-hmm. in the share prices. If you can just identify a prospect that has, number one, enough size potential to interest a major company to come and buy it. Mm-hmm. So you look at size, then obviously grade. And then third, you got to look at metallurgy. Uh, metallurgy is often the killer in these things, and that you can find yeah. an enormous deposit. But if you can't get the gold out economically, it really doesn't matter. So mm-hmm. those are the three things that I really look at. And again, you've got to go to the people running the program and ask them, what do you need to see to make this thing work? What are your cost parameters? What do you think it's going to cost to build, you know, build the the mine to exploit the deposit you're looking for. What's it mm-hmm. going to cost per ton to bring it out? What's the mm-hmm. middle going to be? Just those basic questions. And most of these companies, I'm afraid, don't have that sense. Most of them are just drilling a hole to see what's there and hoping they hit. Mm-hmm. You need to have, before you even go into a deposit or an exploration project, a conceptual idea of what you have to find to pay for the capital and mining costs. You mentioned also uh, teamwork and open minds uh, to revise and adjust the exploration target concept. I guess uh, sometimes people can take a position, uh, a, a geologist even, uh, can take a position, an idea, a theory about how 
something was laid down and that can uh, that how a deposit was laid down and uh, unless they're willing to revise their thinking and and also give and take among the team of uh, geologists and and other uh, scientists then uh, you you could go you could go wrong that way I guess by not being open with an open mind right precisely I think I would guess eighty percent of the discoveries out there uh, certainly involve a, a good portion of the geologic team be able to conceptualize what's going on, reevaluating the data, and adjusting their their exploration model or thesis mm-hmm. to to match what they're seeing. And and mm-hmm. if they're not seeing what they think they should be seeing, mm-hmm. fail. You get out of it. That's the fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. No room for arrogance then and stubbornness. Uh, you you need to let the truth. Uh, you need to be open to the truth, I guess, is what you're telling me. And then money. Money, I think you uh, you mentioned the cost of capital that's going to be required to put a mine into production. I mean, clearly this is a hurdle. Uh, some of these little mining companies with uh, uh, 10, 20 million market caps wanting to uh, find a deposit that requires a billion-dollar capital, uh, not, the chances aren't very good without diluting themselves from here to kingdom come, I guess, huh? Well, it depends on the quality of the deposit again. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can point to a company like uh, Reservoir Minerals, mm-hmm. who are in joint venture with Freeport on, our, on a discovery over in uh, Serbia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they found a deposit that's worth, you know, many billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. But they structured a deal such that Freeport has to provide them with a, an economic feasibility study mm-hmm. in order to earn their 75%, at which point... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the smaller company, Reservoir, owns 25% of something that's been defined and has economic parameters behind it mm-hmm. at zero cost to them. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's one way I think sure. it, yeah. it, it can work. But you, you need to, as rapidly as possible, to find how big this is. And I want to invest in companies that are finding something good enough that someone's going to buy it. I don't want to find be involved in a company that finds a mediocre deposit, which means they've got to raise all the money to go through the pre-fees, feasibility studies, yeah. environmental studies, social studies. You know, that just drags on and on, and yeah. you end up being diluted. Every, absolutely. Well, we've seen it more often than not, uh, for sure. But there certainly are companies out there. Brent, uh, you mentioned Reservoir Minerals. Is there any anyone else you would like to mention? And I, I know that there's also this cycle where you want to you want to catch these companies uh, as at the very start of their discovery uh, when they're finding one of these monsters, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one company that I'm invested in, another one, is, is called Mirasol Resources, which have got, um, you know, I know them well. They're technically the, amongst the best. They've gotten the order of $23 million in the bank. They just struck a joint venture with Yamana in Chile mm-hmm. on a very high-level uh, exploration concept that at surface looks really, really encouraging. It shows me that there's the potential for size and grade there. So mm-hmm. Yamana is going to come in and spend a bunch of money determining if that works or not. Uh, that's the very early stage of the up, upside. If mm-hmm. trenching and subsequent drilling confirms this thesis, this company stands to do really well. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, 
uh, Marisol is one on my list, and uh, so I'm very excited to to hear you say that, Brent. Uh, yeah, I want to thank you very much for coming on again. Uh, it's uh, explorationinsights.com, folks. Go there, take advantage of some of the information that Brent provides. Some good guidance, some good guidelines on how to. Uh, to reduce the risks, uh, increase the odds of success in the, the mining sector. And Brent has been around uh, this business for quite a while as an exploration geologist. He writes an excellent newsletter uh, geared towards investors in this sector. So thank you very much, Brent, for joining me again. I look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Thank you, Jay. So do I. Thank you. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to commercial break, but don't go away because coming back, Richard Mayberry will be with me. He's the author of Richard Mayberry's U.S. and World Early Warning Report. Richard is a regular guest on this show now, uh, and uh, he's going to talk to us about a very interesting special report that he's put out, The End of Washington as Superpower, Why It's Great News and What You Can Do Now to Prosper and Profit. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Richard Mayberry after the break. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting Kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, we're really pleased to uh, have Richard Mayberry with us. At least I hope he's going to be with us. He was with me a minute ago, a couple of minutes ago during the commercial break, and then we lost contact with Richard. Uh, but uh, I trust that uh, my engineer will be able to get Richard back on the line uh, momentarily. I uh, would uh, like to say that Richard has an excellent uh, newsletter, Richard Mayberry's uh, U.S. and World Early Warning Report. Uh, and do we have Richard? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Are you? Oh, there? good, you're there. We lost yeah. you for a minute, Richard. You're yeah, you're okay though, right? Yeah, there was something wrong with the phone company. They were doing something strange. I don't know what. Well, you know, here's what's strange about it. I was just joking about you. Say hi, hi, Richard. You're on the other side of the San Andreas Fault, <laughs> and then yeah, right. and then you were gone. <laughs> so I don't know, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it was something with the phone company. All right. In any event, I'm glad you're with us, and I, I should tell our folks, uh, most people, I think, by now are aware of you. You've been a, a, a guest on this show for a number of times, uh, and I really want to, uh, I'm really pleased that you could join me again. Uh, one would like to focus today on the end of Washington as superpower, your your special report that's available uh, at uh, at your website, people can can go there and order this report, right, Richard? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, um, and, and it's and we're looking at uh, the website now, as um, which I should know by heart. It's Richard Mayberry. It's Richard J Mary Mayberry dot com, right? Uh, yes, I think Richard Mayberry dot com works too, though. Okay, Richard Mayberry M A Y B U R Y dot com. Uh, and it's an excellent report. Uh, Richard, uh, his background in history is so valuable, I think. And, and uh, you know, I think Americans don't really know much about history or whatever they know has been uh, homogenized and, and sort of uh, propagandized by the statist institutions that we're all uh, subjected to, uh, most importantly, the, uh, the uh, school system that we uh, are all indoctrinated under. So it is a very valuable a very valuable piece of work, as Richard's newsletter is. I just thought, Richard, I'd like to read off uh, some of the topics from your latest newsletter, which I just received uh, on the Internet. Oh, Here are some okay. of the topics, folks, and this will give you an idea of why you need to subscribe to Richard's letter, I think. I mean, it's one of my favorite things that I read every every month. Here's one topic. The new religious wars are popping up like dandelions, promising us more profits. Uh, Washington is gearing up for war with China. That's on page four. A company likely to do well from the West drought. You get this drought out there in California. Uh, is a draft coming for Americans? And a new type of city where the top priority is security. And a last topic, uh, understanding the Mideast maelstrom. Uh, you know, just just loaded with very valuable, very fascinating information, Richard. So I just wanted our listeners to know what some of the topics were in your newsletter, uh, which, of course, people can also order there at richardmaybury.com. Well, Richard, you know, I, I opened this book, The End of Washington as Superpower, uh, and in the early pages, uh, you really show three maps depicting the Western or the Washington Empire, I should say wasn't so much of an empire in 1800. You show a map in 1800, 13 colonies, and the yet-to-be-conquered Native American territory just to the west uh, of those 13 colonies, but on this side of the Mississippi, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then in 1900, uh, when the U.S. Uh, you know, had solidified that area through the lower 48 states and I guess had also laid claims to Alaska and Hawaii and a couple of islands in the Caribbean, you know, we became somewhat more significant. Uh, a lot more significant, in fact. But now, in 2015, a third map that you show in this wonderful book, uh, you show the U.S. and its empire, uh, you know, throughout basically most of the world. It's it's really a, a very impressive area of uh, of control that the United States has. And you sort of show those countries that are uh, 
uh, where we have a military presence and those that are really sort of subjected to uh, to, to American power, uh, the direction of an expanding influence of the U.S. has looked to be, you know, just a one-way street, Richard, up until now. Uh, you know, it's hard for most of us to see how that can come to an end. So what is there to stop this expansion of our military-industrial complex? Well, it, it is stopping simply from the forces that stop pretty much all empires, and that is uh, it's going broke. Um, you can only um, control a given amount of, of territory or of the world um, if you've got the economic resources to do it. And Washington doesn't anymore, um, especially the military resources. Americans don't realize that um, the U.S. Armed Forces, at the time, most of that, that imperial expansion was going on in the 1940s and 50s, the U.S. Armed Forces were the armed forces that won World War II. Mm-hmm. And um, an example, a statistic that's always easy to remember, is that at, at that time, the U.S., uh, at the end of World War II, when it started on this expansion, um, Washington owned 105 aircraft carriers, and it had just recently used nuclear weapons on somebody. Mm-hmm. So it had an amount of of power that nobody, it had a superiority nobody has ever experienced before. And so the whole world realized that you better go along with the plans of the people in Washington because if you don't, something very bad can happen to you. Mm-hmm. And, there, and so there was this tremendous uh, expansion of U.S., of Washington's power uh, around the world at that time. And that's when you had... Uh, things like the Bretton Woods monetary system set up and um, NATO and the UN and all sorts of other economic and military arrangements that the U.S. Um, formed or, or uh, at least uh, promulgated in one way or another. And the, the whole world basically was taken over by this power by, let's say, 1955 or so. And then we get to the Vietnam War, and then they start dismantling all of this military power. And now they've got an empire they built up with this tremendous ability to impose their will on anybody, and they have dismantled that ability. So the rest of the world now is beginning to rise up and split away from the U.S. empire to start ignoring Washington's wishes. And that's the essential thing, the big picture that's going on in the world today, is the U.S. empire is falling apart because they threw away their ability to hold it together. Um, And this is not an an argument for them to launch a big military buildup and go out and try to reestablish the empire. I'm just pointing out, that's the condition we're living under. When you look at the economic problems we're having and the foreign policy problems and all sorts of other difficulties that um, um, Americans are being told are big big uh, things that they have to solve, when you look at this big world picture, that's the essential thing that's going on, is the empire that was built in the 40s and 50s is now falling apart. Mm. So 
we've dismantled it, as you say, but, but what is there that caused us to do that? I mean, is it just that, that there is a practical limit to power, to, to empires, Richard? And that yeah, there's something yeah. internally that takes place that you just, you just uh, can't keep going? There's some, mm-hmm. some force in place that keeps it from happening? Yes, and I'm not saying it's a good thing. I think it's no. A I know that. I, uh, you're a libertarian, yeah. Richard. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, this is evil stuff, in your view. And and yeah, then the founding right. fathers, and in the view of the founding fathers, I believe, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, they would have, they would be just you know blown away by by the the horror of this thing, all the atrocities that have been committed yeah. in the name of U.S. leadership over the decades. Right. Um, well, in so, the name so, of liberty, a lot of times, or the yeah, name of freedom, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that's the that's the big thing. I mean, they they have gone around the world um, creating Killing alliances people. with yeah, in either directly or indirectly forming alliances with various dictators all over the world. Uh, a good good example right now is the Saudi dictators. The the Saudi royal family is one of Washington's. Allies, they're a bunch of dictators. Oh. And, <laughs> yeah, Horrible. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, um, there is a, you know, your question is, is there a fundamental um, force Lim- at work that causes mm-hmm. empires to fall apart? And yes, there is. Um, it is the fact that you've got to have that uh, economic strength to pour into your military to keep other people intimidated. And what happened, or, or economists ca- talk about the conflict between guns and butter. You mm-hmm. can spend your money on guns, or you can spend your money on welfare schemes. And what happened is Washington thought that it was somehow some exception to this rule, and that they could have both a warfare state and a welfare state. Mm-hmm. The same mistake that the Roman Empire made. Um, and so they, they went out to build both a warfare state and a welfare state. Um, and, you know, putting it in very simple terms that everybody's a, a, a familiar with these days, uh, you can have an empire or you can have Obamacare, but you can't have both. Yeah. And, <clears throat> Obamacare I'm using as the symbol of the entire welfare state. Of and, course. Yeah, you, you just can't have both. Or you cannot afford both. Um, and they have, on top of everything, they've levied so many taxes and regulations and other kinds of economic um, hardship on the economy that um, they've, they've greatly reduced the economy's ability to build up the military machine. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> this mania for regulating people in their economic lives is a, is a big part of that, too, this, this these people are power junkies, and they stick their fingers into everything in the world, and you know now they're losing their fingers. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I couldn't help but think about uh, you know the actions of the Federal Reserve and and your concept that you talk about frequently in your newsletter, malinvestment. You know, if you, uh, as David Stockman has pointed out on this show, you know, if you take away price discovery in the capital markets, you're going to destroy capitalism. And that's mm-hmm. certainly what we're doing as well. So, it's yeah, it's a, but it's interesting. You know, people want to have it all, right? They want to have it without working for it. Uh, and that's socialism and, uh, of course, uh, envy and everything else that comes into play. Well, what one of the really interesting things that I see happening here, Richard, is what's going on with the BRICS. Uh, and also the you know you you talked about 
you know, our, our waning economic power. Uh, and certainly Washington is not, is trying to deny that it's going broke. Uh, but yet, you know, the Chinese and the, and the BRICS, uh, but especially the Chinese, are really infuriated by not having uh, some more power in the IMF, more voting rights, and more ability to have a say about uh, the currency, the, the dollar, which they, you know, I think they're right to be angry about because it's really uh, a, a license to steal and to, and to take wealth away. Isn't a lot of this built upon this notion of, of the dollar, the petrodollar that's been put in place to replace the gold dollar after 1971, Richard? Uh, yeah, you know, um, um, uh, an interesting point in all of this, uh, you know, it goes back to the collapse of the empire. Um, the, you, you mentioned the IMF. Well, that's another one of those institutions that uh-huh. Washington, Washington set up to dominate the world back in the 40s and 50s. And um, the, these are all American plans for the whole world. And the rest of the world wants to have something to say about what happens to them. Yeah, strange. <laughs> you know, the, huh? the old thing about the, the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. Uh-huh. If, if you're going to do things to us, we want to have a say in what you're doing. And right. these people in Washington can't get it through their heads that when the IMF or the UN or somebody uh, is doing something according to American plans that these other people that are being affected want to have some say in it. And, and Washington wants to continue being the leader of the world, the guy who runs everything. Uh, and again, it's all falling apart now. They've built the thing up. It's called, you know, historians like to refer to imperial overstretch. Mm-hmm. And that's where Washington is right now in a big, big way. Okay, so uh, maybe you could help us see some of these signs. I mean, I see them clearly, I think. I think part of it is in this uh, economic sphere and the waning power. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I like your comment on it, uh, the, the Chinese have set up this bank, uh, this, what, what is it called, a, sort of the Infrastructure Development Bank or some such uh, institution that's supposed to rival the World Bank. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, all of a sudden, England, the UK joins this bank, and then Australia, uh, New Zealand joins, um, and um, you know all of our closest friends. It seems mm-hmm. uh, Germany and uh, uh, Germany and France have run off, and practically everybody except the United States and Japan has now jumped in as members, or at least applied for membership uh, in this uh, AIIB. I guess it's the Asian Infrastructure, I forget exactly what it stands for. Uh, It seems very interesting, and and clearly Washington was really upset about this, uh, about all all of our closest allies joining up uh, with this adversary, of, uh, at least as Washington sees it. Yeah, right. Um, Washington gets so upset over these alternatives to its structure for the world, and um, it, it goes back to the ego thing. These people, they're power junkies, and they want to run the world. And anything that, that um, undermines their ability to steer events, they consider to be a crisis. <laughs> and to the point that they will send young American men and women in uniform off to die trying to e- eliminate this threat to their power. 
It's, mm-hmm. it's insane. It's absolutely insane. But that's what empires do. They get it into their head that they're superior to everybody else, and they know how to run other people's lives. And, uh, and then, you know, somebody says, no, you don't, and that's a crisis. Yeah. Richard, uh, well, four minutes left. I can't believe we only have four minutes left. Uh, Putin seems to be very concerned about the United States. I guess he's probably justified to a certain extent for, for worrying about the United States' power. Or would you, your advice to him be, don't worry about it, uh, Mr. Putin. Uh, the United States is in decline anyway. Oh, um. Gosh, I, I, I don't think I'd have any advice for Mr. Putin other than pack your bag and, and disappear and hide someplace. Um, uh-huh. I think, uh, you know, he, he's become a symbol of the threat to U.S. power, mm-hmm. um, and, and they're going to get rid of him somehow. But um, uh, I, I, I find it hard to be in a position to advise these people on what they ought to do because my mind is so far different than their mind. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah I, would, I would think so. Uh, as uh, a lover of liberty, I think that's probably right. Yeah, uh, you know, the only advice I could give them, all of them, from Washington to Moscow and Beijing and all of them, is just resign and go home. Well, that's that's probably, but uh, yeah, you're you're quite a bit quite a bit removed from their mindset, I would say. <laughs> Listen, I'd like to just tell you, uh, our listeners, uh, some of the chapters in this wonderful uh, special report that you can order the end of Washington as superpower. Uh, start out with the Monroe Doctrine and explains how that sort of set the table for uh, the mindset of America's today. Uh, chapter one, the American retracement, which really talks about what's going to happen when this thing unfolds, Richard, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there's so many interesting chapters. One of the most interesting ones for me, the British threat to the United States. My goodness, I thought the Brits were our closest friends, but you talked about that recently in our letter, uh, in your newsletter. Uh, you know, there's just uh, chapter four, the revolution and reasons for hope. Uh, two minutes left. Why should we be hopeful uh, for uh, a revolution against the American power, the superpower. We should be hopeful because the U.S. empire is a terrible drain on the American people. It is the single biggest threat to us. And when it's gone, life is going to be better for us. Uh, just as you know, the British had an empire, the French government had an empire, the Russian empire existed... Those empires are gone now, and all of those countries are much better places to live now that they no longer have empires. And America will be, too, when this empire is gone. But the transition period is going to be nasty, and and it is nasty. We're in it now. So um, I'm very hopeful that if more people begin to understand that Washington has an empire and the demise of the empire is a good thing, then it'll happen more quickly and we'll get out of the transition more quickly and life will be a lot better. All right, very good. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Richard. I just tell our people, richardmayberry.com, and Richard has some great, uh, some great investment advice, has done very well for his subscribers over the years. Go to that website, sign up for his letter, buy the special report, uh, The End of Washington is a Superpower. Richard, sorry we're out of time. 
Uh, no problem. Next time, uh, can I next time we'll, we'll, we'll hit on some more of these questions. So much more to talk to you about, but we do have to go now. Thank okay. you so much for being with us once again. Well, folks, next week we're going to have Rick uh, Rule is going to be with us from Sprott Global Resource Investments and also Abraham Dross. He's the CEO of an up-and-coming company called Carlisle Goldfields. I want to thank Tacey Trump, our sponsors, uh, Matt Widener, my engineer, all those for making this show possible. Thanks to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million.